So if your goal is to lose body fat, you're going to integrate more muscles when you start training these other planes of motion. If you're wanting to perform better at a sport, you have to be able to demonstrate strength and decelerative ability and power and uh, and so forth in these different points of motion. And if you want to be more injury resilient, if you're having low back pain, you're having knee pain or even shoulder issues, this could kind of be the secret weapon, if you will, in actually addressing what the true issue that's causing you to have those type of uh, problems. I gotta work on that. I'm a little, a little froggy today. So, thank you, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Fitness Line Down podcast. Where today I am once again honored to be joined by none other than Josh Hankin, creator, CEO, master of everything DBRT related. And it might not be, it might not be the most like special thing that you're gonna find on social media or the interwebs. But we're going to talk about, we're kind of, I'm going to geek out a little bit about planes of motion. Now, this might not sound exciting for you. You might be already tuning off on this podcast. You might want to stick around because you might learn about how to actually make your fitness experience more enjoyable, maybe more intense, less intense, without even changing weight, but changing and understanding better the planes of motion. So, Josh, again, I appreciate you and your busy day to spend a little time talking about this. Oh, my pleasure. I'm just glad we get the topic that most people won't care about. And then I brought on somebody that, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> I guess it's either planes motion, Josh. I don't know. Let's just see how this goes. Well, and but, you're, it, but you're right, though. It's probably one of the most impactful. Well, and I will say, like, from a guy who's had the formal education, I mean, I don't want to whip out all my credentials because there's not many, but I do have my bachelor's in exercise and sports science, emphasis and strength fitness. No, wait, what is it? <laughs> bachelor's in uh, fitness. Bachelor's in Exercise and Sports Science, Emphasis in Fitness, Concentration in Strength Conditioning. There you go. And of all the time, like all the book learning, we may or may not have touched a little bit about planes of motion, like biomechanics and stuff, but it was basically like, here's your planes of motion. All right, next chapter. I mean, it was just like almost a sentence long. We didn't really delve into what kind of things we could use for those planes of motions. And as we break through this, you know, I have a lot of students that come to uh, Fitness Line Down and I like to ask them these questions because I like to get their brain thinking because I know that we're not covering this at that level. But it's funny when you ask them, like, and we'll break, I might be jumping the gun a little bit, but sagittal plane is the most popular plane. So give me the exercises in the sagittal plane. And they'll list like every exercise in the category or in the library of exercises. And all of a sudden you just go to the next plane of motion. What's that? What's an exercise there? And it's just crickets. You know, they just have no answer. And they might give you something that's kind of like, but it's like, mm, I don't think so. But so I want to, let's just break down, Josh, for our listener out there who may be the fitness enthusiast or maybe just the fitness, I want to do something with this, but I'm not sure. Let's just break down the planes of motion. I'm going to let you use your expertise and tell us what they are and how they work. Well, I think you hit on the major point that a lot of times, you know, we basically every training certification, every formal education has the planes of motion you know, maybe thrown out there, but we don't give any meaning to what, why we should care. 
right? <laughs> and I think that's ultimately what we're going to break down today is like, why is this something that you should care about, whether you're wanting to lose body fat, perform in a sport, or be more injury resilient. So I think we get taught like, okay, here are your three points of motion. And everyone's like, okay, so it's like, if I said, hey, Corey, this food's really good for you, but I didn't tell you why, you know, or what it did for you, you'd be like, I don't know if I really care. I have other things to focus upon, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about the three points of motion, we're talking about generally the whole body uh, when we're talking about this because individual joints can move in different planes of motion as well. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about whole body movement. And so when you're talking about the three sagittal point or three planes, you're talking about sagittal, which is predominantly up and down, front and back. What we would normally, like you said, think about than most of what we do in the gym, a squat, a push-up, a pull-up, a bet row, all these things are sagittally plane based exercises. And so what we would then have is we have frontal plane, which basically is lateral movement. And then we have the transverse plane, which is basically rotation. And the cool thing about, especially the frontal plane, the transverse plane is that we can both either move through those planes or resist them. And so we have different chains of our body and structures of our body that are designed for either one, right? And they're also working kind of this constant interplay. And, you know, why should you care about that though? So I think, you know, what people don't understand is like I said, our body is designed to use these in specific chains. So if your goal is to lose body fat, you're going to integrate more muscles when you start training these other planes of motion. If you're wanting to perform better at a sport, you have to be able to demonstrate strength and decelerative ability and power and uh, and so forth in these different points of motion because i i mean outside of powerlifting and olympic lifting i don't know of another sport that's only sagittally plane based uh and, and and if you want to be more injury resilient if you're having low back pain you're having knee pain or even shoulder issues this could kind of be the secret weapon if you will in actually addressing what the true issue that's causing you to have those type of uh problems so i think if we start playing the planes of motion in that context, then people are like, they'll perk up and they'll be like, oh, that's interesting. I don't, why, why don't more people talk about it? And I think ultimately we go back to the simple sad fact that we still have this huge bodybuilding influence and people don't know, well, what muscle am I working? If I'm working the frontal plane, what muscle am I working <laughs> if I'm in the transverse plane? And, and so I think people get confused on like how to develop value. But the, to me, that only speaks to the fact that we still overall as an industry don't understand how our bodies are made to move. And if that persists, then we're always going to have a problem appreciating these variables that are really important to how we should be training and progressing. Uh, yeah. I, another soundbite right there, but you know, a longer soundbite, a, a Josh <laughs> Henkin soundbite. Um, you know, so the question is, because as I mentioned, and we've kind of agreed upon a lot of people in the fitness professional profession, we never, you know, it's here it is, here's what they are moving on. So how did you get kind of with the DVRT as you were growing this, um, how did you end up really finding out more about the planes of motion, how to use them accordingly, like in a way to progress and regress movements? Yeah. I don't know if there was like one, like epiphany. I wish, you know, I could think of like one moment. I was like, Oh, I got an idea. I right. think, you know, like you, you know, going through college, you get exposed to these concepts, but then, you know, when you go into the actual practical setting of the profession, whether it's strength conditioning, or I would even say in, a lot, in that time, a lot of rehabilitation clinics, like it was uh, it's muscles, it's exercises. It's, you know, this is what we do. It's all sadly pain based. But because we're so focused on load, right? We're going to get you stronger because we're going to add more load. We're going to get you stronger and more load, or, or we're going to change the reps and stuff like that. So I, I think I just was having a problem just making progress with people. And I would 
read material. And I, I always had this, you know, inkling of like, does, especially when I worked in like strength conditioning with athletes, like, did what we, what did, what were we doing in the weight room look anything to be athletic? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer was overwhelmingly, not really. Uh, and I know you've worked in those settings as well, Corey, like if you think about, you know, what most strength conditioning programs look like, they don't really look anything to do with athletics. Um, you know, e even the more progressive ones at times during, especially the late nineties and early two thousands, like it, it looked like you're either a power lifter or an Olympic lifter, right? I remember, you know, talking to my friends in, in university settings that, you know, they'd be interning or doing graduate work with a coach and their strength coach either had a background in Olympic lifting and powerlifting. So guess what? Most of the programming was. And so I think you just then perpetuate that. That's what you learn as a young coach. And you just do that and it just cycles through the industry. So I think for me, I just looked at like, this doesn't seem to match up. And I, and I wasn't making the progress that I thought I should be making with people. I'm like, why don't we train these different qualities? And I think, especially in the late nineties, you know, learning about movement patterns, what, um, from Paul Check at the time was pretty eye-opening. I'm like, oh, I've never heard anyone talk about movement patterns. We talked about muscles or exercises. There's a power exercise or strength exercise, as you well know. And, you know, when we break down the movement patterns, you know, the one that looked, that, that I never heard anyone really go into any, not, not like a whole dissertation upon, but actually even gain awareness of was locomotion. And that, you know, how, here's, a, here's a movement pattern that makes us uniquely human that I would say 99.9% .9 fitness professionals understand very little about. And like, how do we make people actually better if we don't even understand the most human movement pattern that we're supposed to be performing? And so when I started going, okay, well, what, what makes up locomotion? Oh, there's all these different concepts. Yeah, yeah. if I walk straight towards you, I'm moving through the sagittal plane, but in order to do that, I have to possess frontal plane stability, otherwise I'd fall right over. And there's a reason I'm you know, using opposite arm and leg motions to create some rotation to make it an efficient movement. Because I think a lot of people don't understand your body craves efficiency because we're still based upon evolutionary standards where if, it would be very inefficient for me to try to move and expend the most amount of energy possible. Mm -hmm. My body is designed to spend the least amount of energy possible because from an evolutionary standpoint, I don't know what I'm going to eat, right? I don't right. know what no, I'm going to eat. Totally. So it just got me thinking, understanding these base concepts of like, man, we are not training the body for how we're designed to move. Uh, it doesn't mean, like you said, the sagittal plane movement is bad, but I just think so many people get stuck there and they don't know the value of training the other planes that their eyes can never be opened up to like, oh, this is very valuable or they do token efforts, right? We know my running joke is, you know, you know, like you said, I think before we got started that if you ask people about the sagittal plane, they'll list like a million exercises. You ask about frontal plane, they'll give you a side plank, maybe a carry, and that might be it. <laughs> maybe a lateral one man that's actually that's, a, that's impressive because with the college age students as soon as i ask, ask about a frontal plane movement i get dumbbell lateral raises for the shoulders <laughs> that's all i get <laughs> just and, like and, and from a very technical standpoint they're not wrong i mean no that's it it's like that's yeah. a, but, mm, but that, no. that, that, yeah. well, when we're talking about whole body movement i think that's where people get stuck right like how does the body move and deal with these different planes and why is it valuable again so i i think what we don't do is like we Here's a big variable in our training. We don't know how to use it for creating progressions or regressions. We don't know, I think you said it before, how it changes the intensity of the exercise. And I think because the loads are used 
at a lower level because you're in more unstable environments that people tend to devalue them. They're only for stability. They're only for you know corrective exercise. They're not for building strength or you know if I want to look better. And I think that's really a misunderstanding of what these planes of motion can offer people. Totally. And it's, you know, it's funny that you've mentioned about that movement efficiency and, um, you know, we don't like evolutionary, we just don't know the next time we're going to eat. So we want to conserve energy because we keep talking about, it's almost like, are we, are we contradicting ourselves in the fitness industry to some degree when we're talking about maybe fat loss programs, we want to burn as many calories as we can, but then at the same time, it's like, well, we need to reserve some energy as well. And I talk about this movement efficiency because we talk to a lot of, a lot of leads that are interested in our program and, overwhelmingly, everybody wants more energy, right? They're just like, I just, I'm zapped in the day. I don't have the energy. Now we could talk about the fact that there's a lot of things in their, in their lifestyle that might contribute to that nutrition, sure. poor sleep. But I like to use that example, kind of like what you're talking about with the gate pattern, which we're going to expose a little bit, but I'll use that walking up the stairs, you know, that walking up the stairs, if you're not very movement efficient, it's going to cost you more energy to walk up those stairs. And now all of a sudden, like you've got a bank of energy over here, and you have to take from the savings to make that climb up the stairs. And it might be just a, a few units of energy, if you will. But after a while throughout the day that that really starts adding up. And before you know, it, you are depleted of energy because you're not moving as efficiently. So if we can help people, you know, as you talked about, like, yeah, we can actually incorporate more muscle. So if you're looking for fat loss, we know that that's going to give you more return on your investment. If, if it's just about more energy, I mean, all this stuff makes so much sense when you really delve into it and you really let yourself be exposed and steep into it and programming is so much more fun. You know, that when I graduated from UWL, I always wanted, like, my thought was, Oh, I can't wait to mix like the science of exercise with like the art and creativity of training people. And, you know, for so long, there was that gap until I got the DVRT where it's like, my goodness, I mean, yes, the planes of motion, that's very scientific movement patterns, very scientific. And now I can make these programs and, you know, nobody knows, I shouldn't say nobody knows, but you don't have to tell people in the gym, Hey, did you know you're moving in the lateral plane right now? <laughs> you know, like hashtag beast mode, lateral plane, but they start understanding better. And as they get more proficient and moving in these planes of motion, or even before that resisting these planes of motion, which we'll talk about, they see how that does help develop a stronger body, a more resilient body. And then they appreciate it all the more. And the, the neurological effect, right? So it's, that's why I would, I tell people in the seven years that we've owned fitness line down, I've never heard anybody say that they're bored here, you know, because even though there's a squat, but a squat is not a squat is not a squat. I mean, it's like, how can we manipulate the planes of motion and load? I mean, there's so many different variables. So that's, for me, that's exciting. I, <laughs> I hope that- a lot of interesting points there, because I mean, I think of, you know, when we're talking about the efficiency part, I have the Lee Taft quote pop in my head and Lee is a great you know, speed coach. And, you know, we made a tweet several years ago that I've used in my presentation. I think you've probably seen that, that like, ultimately, if you look at the goal of athletic based training, like if you're training of athletes, I mean, yeah, you may want to add more muscle to them, but let me get, I'll get to that caveat in a second. But ultimately the goal is to make them more efficient. That's the goal of strength training for athletes is to become more efficient. Because like you said, if you can expend less energy, if you can produce force faster, if you do all these things, you're going to be a better athlete. Um, so it doesn't make sense to me why we don't have the same thought process when it comes to general population, that they have everyday lives that are very busy and they want to have, like you said, more energy. And I think people really value if they, I think if, again, it goes back to, I think we, something we talked about last time is 
if you can show people that exercise is actually, you know, energizing, if it actually is fun, if it actually is, doesn't have to hurt, they're going to be more apt to fit it into their lives. If you make it miserable, if you make it painful, if you make it all these things, they're going to find easy ways not to make it a part of their lives. So I think it's, it's, it's a, it's responsibility we have to delve deeper and to think about things and to question things more so that we can deliver on both the experience and the results that people say they want. And like, I think we're being, you know, we're sticking our fingers in our ears. If, you know, people are telling us what they want, we're like, no, but you need this. Um, and, and I mean, there's a way to satisfy both. Sometimes people don't know what they need, but I think, you know, like really taking time to listen, like I need more energy, meaning that probably the average person thinks they're going to be more drained from an exercise program that they're not even going to have the energy to get through the rest of the day versus, wow, I got to get my exercise program because every time I do it, I feel energized and I feel like I want to do more in my day. That That's a big profound difference. I think that should be motivation for us as coaches to want to delve into this topic a lot more. And you're so absolutely correct on that because, and I just wonder if so many coaches out there in good faith just don't have those answers, you know, they, they don't, decreasing the load is actually a good thing, especially when we're learning these different movement patterns, because we have to, you know, we use the load as a way for feedback. So we know, you know, I just think about if we're to do a, a lateral lunge, and I just think about how many people in a lateral lunge position will do body weight or the hold a medicine ball or something like that. But that doesn't give them the according feedback that they need. And so what do we find people usually take that step out to the side, they're, they're lunging, they're they're doing the task of the lunge, as we like to talk about, but they're not necessarily doing the intent. They don't have that intention in there. So they just merely step out there, probably take too big of a step. Now, as we talk about, you're moving in the frontal plane now as you take that step, but we need to resist that rotation. And that's where people go wrong is that they just haphazardly step out there. As they're coming back into the center, they'll allow their knee to cave in. So there's that rotation at the knee that we don't want. Or more likely, the hips are getting turned. And before you know it, people are doing those lateral lunges. And what's the common thing you hear? My knees hurt or my low back hurts when I do this. And we don't have an answer like a lot of coaches. They're just like, well, I don't know it's good for you because it makes you tired and you know sore. And we want you to be sore so you know you work those muscles. But all of a sudden, using the ultimate sandbag, like this is what I love about it, is I don't have to give somebody, and I tell people this, I give them a 10, 20-pound core bag. And I say, I'm not loading you to just be mean and have you like loaded with weight and have to resist the weight, use that. So as they step to the side now and they pull that bag tighter into their body through their lats, which we accept to be the top part of your core musculature, that turns on that switch. So now they have more of core stability as they come up out of there. So there's not that unwanted turn and rotation. That makes sense, right? Okay, good. I just want to make sure that I go through all this <laughs> stuff. And what I tell my clients is actually what we, what we have. And, but their eyes, when they light up, you know, like, wow, you know, as soon as they, you know, you tell them how to take a good step, like, you know, make sure that they foot. And this is not something. So I just want people out there to listen. This is not, we don't take people and do lateral lunges the first day. Like we have to build up. And that's the beautiful thing. Once you learn about the planes of motion is how, yes, we move. As you talked about the, the most common plane of motion, that um, sagittal plane, well, that's the best place for people to learn and exercise, right? I mean, when you want somebody to learn a hip hinge, we give them the deadlift to begin, but we don't necessarily want them to stay at the deadlift, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a lot of interesting points, and we use the lateral lunge as a as a reference point for people because I think most people in their heads can you know understand a lateral lunge, right? They're lunging mm -hmm. out to the side. Uh, I think the first thing that you bring up is 
oh, okay, the load's less, so people don't respect it a lot. And I think that's very true because we become so focused on just the external load we're applying. We don't think about all the stress that our body is going through to perform the movement. So if I step out in the lateral lunge, one of the reasons so many people struggle with it is it requires a great deal of decelerative strength of the lower body to catch my body weight as I'm lunging out in this plane, in this direction and stop me then to lower myself into this like asymmetrical squat position because we, you know, both of yourself. So how do you measure how much decelerative load is going through the body? You know, and how much can you, how do you measure how much load the body is taking in that position to move up and down? And then how much power it takes, because it takes great amount of power. That's what people don't respect about lunges to bring yourself back up into that position. So a squat comparably is so much easier, right? I mean, when you take out all those different elements of deceleration, acceleration, power, stability, and strength, I, I think if we break it down that standpoint, like people's heads explode because they're like, but, but the load on the squat is so much more, but like, yeah, but you can't see the load the body's dealing with in these other movements. So yes, the external load could appear much less, but the amount of work and stress of the body could be significantly more. So that's why, you know, in our system, you know, you know this so well, Corey, yes, load is an important variable. We need load, but if we only look at load, we miss these other variables. So then like, why? So when that trainer gives that person that lateral lunge and they struggle with it, they don't understand why, because they jumped maybe too many progressions, right? They don't have progressions. How do we go from a squat to a lateral lunge? A lot of trainers don't know. Like, how do we, how would we even get there? How would we even start developing some of these qualities we need to be able to do that exercise? Well, I mean, you mentioned one thing we could do is we can give them better feedback, but there's, as you well know, there's like, probably 20 exercises we could use before they get to the lateral lunge to better prepare them to do that. So I think what happens is, like you said, people see smaller load, they actually think easier exercise. Right. And they, they fail to understand all the, all that's going on to the body as we do this, because we just put these glasses on and all we see is the amount of load they're holding in one way or another. Right. And then we determine, well, this exercise is more difficult because they have more load. Well, they have more load because they're more stable, right? It's easier, right? And, and, and so until we are able to recognize these other variables and how they contribute to intensity of the exercise and the stress of the body, then we're going to miss building better programs. And that's kind of something I'm talking about, about perform better this year. These, these other variables that people miss in their programming. And so they accidentally greatly increase the intensity on people. People struggle, they hurt, they fail. They're so they're crazy sore, but people don't understand. I just gave you a medicine ball and you're super sore. Mm-hmm because they ignored about 20 different variables that were going into how that person has to perform that movement well, versus just moving up and down in their squat. <laughs> you know, and I'm sitting over here laughing because I'll, I'll be honest, like confession time. And you know, we, it's confession because if I would be wrong to be doing it today because I know better, but back in the day when I was making my programs for clients, you know, you're talking about respecting load. I had no respect for load that way where it's after, after of course, international Monday bench press day, um, somewhere in the week, it's leg day. And so the first thing we do is, right, we do squats. got to do the squats because that's, that's where you put the bar on your back. That's where you got the most load. So that's got to be the most intense exercise. And something like a lateral lunge would be kind of considered an auxiliary lift, right? Sure. Like 100%. we're just going to compliment, you know, but it's not, you know, because yes, you got to use lighter weight. There's just no way that it's going to be bigger than the squat, which brings me down that path of um, there's a research article that you like to mention a lot where they did an EMG on a bilateral squat. And I believe the person had a barbell on their back and it might not have been significant load, but how then 
they compared that to a reverse lunge. So just staying in the spot, step back, bring your knee down, coming back up and how the EMG activity was actually significantly greater in the lunge than it was in the squat. And then we find out that it was actually a body weight lunge, you know? So we're talking about now, here's the great thing. I want you to kind of unpack this for our listeners is both exercises are moving in the sagittal plane. So what makes the lunge a lot more challenging than the squat? Sure. And I mean, and that's one of many studies that show this is a very similar thing. So it's always fun. We like science when it says what we like, and we don't like science when it says what we don't <laughs> like. Um, so, I mean, and these are not like new studies. Some of these studies are 10 years old. So, I mean, it's to what you're saying about you making this, like, I think we all did that. I think it's like a, you have to go through that process. The, the part that's more refreshing, I think you, you said in passing, but is a very profound statement is like, if you continue to do it that way, that's a problem. <laughs> it's one of those things like, hey, once I know better, I got to do better. And, and so what you're referring to in that, in that study, and like I said, there's others to do it. So it's not like a single unique study because uh, there was one on like uh, Bulgarian split squats having same amount of EMG, very similar force displacement, you know, uh, versus a bilateral squat. So it is not a unique study, but to answer your question, how does that even happen? Well, for one, like I said, if you're diff- even doing a drop step lunge, you're, there's still a deceleration stress upon the body. And it's more, it's not totally unilateral, but it's more unilateral, right? I call mm-hmm. it asymmetrical position, right? Because both feet are still active. So now you have a more narrow-based support. So more muscles now have to work both to stop you, catch you, and help you drop in that position, while also resisting the fact that you want to sway side to side. I mean, as you know, as a coach, I think this is where most people misunderstand an opportunity to use the points of motion to really help them is like most of your clients of Corey, I, I, I'm imagining if they were like mine, when they first went down the lunge and struggled, they're like waving like they're on a balance beam, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a much more narrow base and they have less support from the lower body, but no one ever sees it as a frontal plane stability issue. Right. They see it nope. as just, I need to get stronger. You need stronger right. quads, you need stronger hamstrings, you need stronger <laughs> glutes, right? <laughs> yes. So what they do, they don't understand is all the muscles that are designed to keep us from falling over aren't trained very well for one reason or another. So that's why that person struggles. So you have all these muscles that not only have to catch you as you drop down and then drive you back up from a less stable position where you're not able to use both legs equally, but now you have this additional stress of the body where the body is fighting this force that's trying to push you all over side to side. So of course, more muscles have to be active. So a great analogy I like to use is why do we squat versus doing a leg press? Because mm-hmm. you get more muscles active, right? You mm-hmm. learn to control your body. There's more stability, blah, 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 right? Then why wouldn't a lunge use more muscles than a squat because the only difference from the squat to leg press is the stability that the leg press offers you. You're still bending your legs. You're still going to knee flexion and you're still extending your legs. The difference in is that you have to navigate more forces in the squat versus the leg press. Well, now take that to a whole nother level when you go from squat to lunge. And I think again, what, what, and, and most people can leg press more than they can squat, right, Corey? Absolutely. I don't know anyone that can't, right? Because you're more <laughs> stable, right? Right. Right. So then why don't we take that same logic? Well, if we use the logic people have for squats and lunges, like you talked about with a leg press, then no one would squat, they would leg press, right? But we yep. say squats are better because we think about, oh, I need to learn how to control my body in space. I need to know how to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and my core has to be active. But then doesn't the lunge that take that to another level? So then doesn't, shouldn't the lunge be even more powerful than the squat as you far think, as what well, we get out of it? But we know way, it but, is. But we get trapped in, we don't use the same logic 
because we go, but the load's so much lighter, Josh. Like I get people on social media that like, you know, you gotta love dead, deadlift dad 2000. They'll get angry if I say lunges are better because they're just emotionally attached. They're like, look all the weight I can lift. But that's no different than me saying, well, I'm not gonna squat because look at all the load I can lift in the leg press. Yeah. You'd be like, well, that's not the same. And I'm saying, well, that's not the same. Exactly. <laughs> so we just have to be consistent with our logic and, and use it. And when we put it in a certain context, then we're like, you know, you want to do the slap in the head thing. Like, why don't I think of it that way? Uh, so I think that's what people have to understand. There's more muscles being active when you have to both produce and resist force at the same time in a very simple way of saying it. So like you said, if your goal is to build more functional strength, that should be something we utilize. If your goal is to lose more body fat, that's something we should utilize. If your goal is to perform better, that's something we should utilize. If you're getting injured a lot, that's something we should utilize, right? Yeah, it doesn't, it, is, it checks all, all the boxes off for people. And it's just one of those things where like we can't get past it's a lighter weight, which is frustrating. Mm -hmm. Well, I think too, like in the industry, if we're training people, then, well, here's the deal, right? And I think maybe this is one reason why at our gym, especially, we have a lot of female clients. I mean, we do have some male clients, but it's overwhelmingly a majority female. But they tend to be more receptive. Well, that's, I, I, well, I tell them right away, like, why is there so many females in this gym? I'm like, because guys are stupid. Yeah. You know, like we just stick with, and then the women go, yes, I understand. <laughs> yeah, right. And then most of the guys that join our gym, why do they join our gym? Because their wives told them to, um, and that's place. a, that's a true story. I, I understand. But most of our deadlift dad, 2000, I'm going to find that person out. Um, you know, it's just like, they want to do their programs. And I, I, I make fun of it because that's me to some degree that used to be me. Like I want to do bench presses because I have an emotional attachment to bench presses that when I used to bench press in college or high school, I was stronger, you know, like I could, I was playing football and whatnot, or, you know, the, the bilateral, both feet on the ground back squats. Like you just had those emotional attachments. Like they bring back some of what I used to be when I was younger. And we think if we go back to that, that that's how it's going to be. But unfortunately it's not. So a lot of females, yes, they're more receptive to this kind of training. I say like females are amazing with their mentality because if something's not working, they're going to stop doing it and find something else. Like we have a lot of females that end up in this gym that have been window shop or not window shopping, have been shopping around the area at local gyms and just looking for something that works for them. That doesn't beat them up. That doesn't hurt them that, you know, they could still get an effective workout, but they're and, quick, and they're quick to pull that, the plug. Doesn't that go back to, uh, yeah, if it doesn't work. And I think it goes back to like we were saying generally, and I don't want to stereotype every woman, generally women don't have the emotional investment into certain lifts that guys <laughs> yeah, do. Right. Right. Uh, and, and, and like you said, they're trying to relive glory days in their mind. Like if I just do this, I'll go back to, if I do my high school football program, I'll be like, I was in high school. And we know that's not how it works, <laughs> but I think that's where, I think that's where it stems from. Like women don't have the same emotional attachment to exercise. So they tend to be a lot more open to things. And, and, and I think, and I've, Again, I don't hate to stereotype at whole gender, but my experience has been women often like things like dance and choreography and things because they like to move. Yeah. So they also tend to be more receptive to this type of move, this type of training because it's movement. It's actually exactly. movement. And yeah. I think that's something that speaks to them. And I wish guys would be a little bit more open to that because we tend to be more egocentric with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, not me. I'm, no, I not definitely have no ego. I've never I'm been there. Yeah. The humblest man in the world. Um, but I'm I said also so. appreciative. Like, if you came to me and go, Josh, I want to squat heavy because I like it. Yeah. Fine. Cool. High five. But if you're going to be like, I'm, I'm doing this because I think it's better, well, then we have to have a different discussion. Exactly. And that does actually, that comment there kind of reminds me of a time in Chicago in 20, 2021 when I was doing a level one and two certification. This guy came up to me. He, you know, trainer at this gym that I was at. 
I don't know how much he really knew about DVRT, but he came to the cert because there were sandbags in his gym. He's like, I should do this. And I think the gym is helping to pay for it or whatnot. And he goes, you know, after we got done and he did really well and his eyes were really open about a lot of things. He goes, I got to tell you, I still personally like to barbell back squat. And I'm like, all right, like that's you. He goes, but I could see how I could use some of these exercises to make my barbell back squat better, you know? And it's like, cool. And then he mentioned, he's like, after this, I probably won't give my, I won't give a lot of my clients the barbell back squat. He's like, cause I see that this could be better for them, you know? So it's just like having that kind of conversation feels so much better than as you're talking about this exercise is better than the other. And, you know, going about that, your only, your only um, argument is load, like that load makes it all the difference. But getting back, you know, as you mentioned, the females, they enjoy the, the movement analysis, the movement so much more, and they're not as intimidated with the sandbags, right? I mean, you give them a, a green bag or a red bag, the core power bag, that's a little more friendly for them. And because a lot of women still, they say they don't want to bulk up, which we know can be almost impossible, um, especially women over 40 or 50. Uh, but they, they're more receptive to the ultimate sandbag because it's not some huge weight. You know, they don't have to worry about putting it on their back. They don't have to worry about lifting it from the ground, this huge barbell or whatnot. And so that really, I just enjoy that. And then it's just fun watching a lot of our females as they feel more challenged with the smaller, like I shouldn't say small, with this, with the lighter load, because we're going through these different planes of motion. Now they actually want to feel how it is if they can get stronger in these planes of motion to start increasing the load. So once they show that efficiency, before you know it, I mean, they're doing lateral lunges, they're doing lateral power cleans with some significant load and they make it look so easy. And that's the fun part about what we do is that they've gotten so efficient now with their movement. We can give them a more complex drill to honor those movement patterns. And yeah, they rock it out of the world. So uh, yeah, I mean, if anyone's seen your social media with the diversity of your clients and the, what they're able to do, I think, you know, if you never had done those drills, you probably just think, oh, those bags are super light and super easy because they do it so well. And it's a, a wide variety of populations and, they, and people don't have a reference point of how difficult that is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think, you know, anyone, it's funny that a lot of your clients do things better than a lot of fitness pros that I see trying to do or stuff uh, <laughs> do, but that goes yeah. to care and, you know, teaching and also progression. But I also think, you know, as much as the women may not be intimidated by the bags, I think also guys, the bags offer some relief too, because I mean, you know, for example, you take the bench press, right? Every guy knows you put 45s on, you know, and then you put more 45 and you know, the more 45s, like you're strong, right? They have no frame of reference usually with like a lateral lunge. Right. So if I can give them a tool that maybe they're not feeling like, oh, and, and we know we've met plenty of guys, you know, that, you know, the idea of the barbell on their back just causes them to win. So, or, you know, they see if you give them a bar and an empty barbell, they're like, they're feeling humiliated, right? Because they think that's no weight. So if you give them this tool that you know is going to actually help them in the movement because, you're getting that feedback like you talked about at the beginning, but you're also giving them some load. They feel like it's heavy, but they don't have a reference point. They just feel strong, right? This is heavy, this is challenging, I'm getting stronger. I think that's a benefit too. And like you said, developing buy-in, I think is one of the hardest things to do. And one of the most, if you develop buy-in with people, then you can really achieve whatever you want. Yeah, and I don't want to break, but like I, we've got a lot of buy-in in this gym and that buy-in, you know, I mean, network, not networking, but referrals. You know, all of a sudden it's like you got people talking about how great their gym is, how good they feel. And then they can even show you that they've been around for a while that they, yeah, they even look better than they did when they started. So there's, there's all that stuff. And I'm just thinking about the planes of motion too, you know, where I, we got some clients that have um, MS and being able to manipulate just in a small dosage for them, 
how much I've heard that this has improved my walking. Like I'm, I'm not as scared with the stairs as I used to be because I feel more confident. And not just that I feel more confident, but I know that I'm stronger to move. And it's just really fun to have these conversations with people and they don't need like the excessive amounts of weight because of how we're challenging those planes of motion. And then and that's even really I, important too, because I mean, yeah. I, just, I don't, I don't want to interrupt because you remind me of a neighbor that we have as a social worker and she's a bit overweight and uh, she has an autoimmune disease that, you know, makes her hesitant to want to exercise because if she does too much, it causes her massive flare ups and problems. And so like, she's actually, because of just knowing that she's looked at our social media and, and it's interesting because her reaction to what we show is that looks fun. Yeah. Like here's someone who really doesn't exercise. They're a little bit hesitant, afraid to exercise, but they look at, because to her, it just looks like movement and dance, kind of like something she could relate to. And she thinks it's enjoyable versus sitting there grunting out these big, heavy weights. I mean, she doesn't know how much the bags weigh. She doesn't have a reference point. Like, I don't want to make it sound like the bags are light. Cause you know, I know the bags are not light. <laughs> like they're not like these toys that we just throw around. Right. Uh, but they do, but the frame of reference is totally different. Right. And, and so they'll do things with the bags that maybe they wouldn't have done with the barbell, but for her just to entice someone who has this hesitation about exercise and she goes, but that looks enjoyable. I would do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it speaks to what you're talking about that, you know, we have to get out of our own heads for a second and listen to what people are telling us. Like when we talk about like, why is there such an obesity problem in this country? There's many reasons, but one of them is that most people think exercise is like torture. And so like, it doesn't matter how much you enjoy it. The average person thinks it's absolute torture. So if we can get them in there and enjoying the process, like you said, and, and talking to people, you know, and, and getting them excited. Like if, if that client walks into their community and is excited to talking about you, you're not paying them. You're not telling them what to say. They're going to, the, their friends are going to see the genuine excitement they're having. They're wanting to come to your gym. That's way cheaper than a Facebook or Instagram ad. And it's probably way more <laughs> reliable too. I used to, my bit, my gym was based on word of mouth. Now, granted, social media wasn't a big thing then, but like it was all word of mouth. And I, and I think that trainers often miss the fact that that should tell you a lot. Like you shouldn't need to work that hard to get referrals if people are having that good of experience because they almost do it themselves, right? Absolutely. You don't even have to ask them. They, they, they want to tell people how awesome it is and how much fun it is. And they want to bring their friends. And like you said, their husbands, I've had you know, a lot of wives do that. They Because you know, they believe they enjoy the process so much. And this is something different. This doesn't, this isn't a miserable experience. So they didn't mean to interrupt. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt because I did. But like, I just think it's, it's such an important, I just wish we could take this and just hammer into coaches' heads how important this is and that all the other stuff, the distractions you give with like DJs and lights flashing and all this, like fine, well, whatever, but ultimately you have to have good training. Yes. And, you know, I, we talked about this briefly um, kind of in texting is that after that level one and two, I mean, we had six clients that came to level one and two, which is just impressive. To spend and, that time, time like, to learn that. I mean, like, it is, it well, says a lot about them. In it, well, it says a lot about them, but then I'm also wondering if it says not enough about me because it's like <laughs> 95% of those people have been with us for over five years. And it's like, I have taught, you know, like I thought I taught you everything about this, but apparently not, but they're just such a, such a fan of this and they want to know the in-depth and nobody is, at least to my face, they never said anything about being disappointed. So I'm happy about that, but it was great having this mix of our clients who, as you mentioned, like they do some of this stuff and it, they do it better than some fitness professionals. And so they've got this experience just as being a client of a gym. So they don't, you know, I mean, and we educate them as best as we can. We answer their questions, 
and having this mix of fitness enthusiasts and fitness professionals. And when we get to the Q and a, and you hear some of these trainers talking about like the hesitancy of using this because they feel like their clients like a certain exercise or a certain piece of equipment where then our clients will chime in and they'll be like, actually, no, I, you know, I used to do that stuff. But once I started getting into this and I started finding out how much more challenging this is and how much better I feel though, like overall, that it doesn't have to hurt, um, that I can improve my quality of life. I could prove my physical strength, mobility, stability, balance. I mean, like, they're like, this is what, so it was fun watching the, the back and forth. I didn't do anything. I just stood there and listened. And I'm like, I should have had my camera out because I had some great testimonials. But I, I think that speaks to the fact, I think coaches, it's a lot of mistakes and we've all made them. Uh, in their head, they're like, oh, my client's like this. And I think a lot of times, you know, I've talked about this privately. It's like, I think clients tend to feel good about things that you get excited about them doing. So if, for example, if when people go, oh, my clients really like to trap bar deadlift, I, like, do they like to trap bar deadlift or is it that you <laughs> high five them and make a big deal of it every time they do it and you tell them that you have PR and you go on social media and you tag them and you make them a star and you know what I'm saying? Like, yep. it, it's, it's everything around it. Like, I don't, I've never had a client that came in and said, I want to do this exercise. I mean, maybe like a bicep curl, maybe a bench press, but like, you know, generally not much, right? They're like, they're, they're coming here, they, they'll do what I'm telling them to do or exactly. you know things like that overall so I, I i've i think what we do as trainers we don't realize that we sort of put our values upon them like if i like this and i think this is good then i'm gonna make a big deal of it and then you're gonna feel like well he's making a big deal of it so it must be good and then you get excited right so and then i think trainers also get stuck i mean clients have the benefit of generally not following fitness social media right as far as like fitness pros so they're not worried that they're not the ones doing, they're not doing trap bar deadlifts or they're not doing heavy back squats. But the trainer, I think it's sucked in, but, oh, my, my mentor, my guru says, this is good, but I'm not doing it. I'm bad. Like, I think, you know, I've had the discussion. I've literally had coaches message me and go, what you've told me works better with my client, but I'm afraid to do it because it's so different. Yeah. I'm like, did you just understand what you just said? <laughs> right. Like, who cares if it's different, if it's better? And, yes. you know, usually innovation comes as something different at first. Right? Well, for sure. And it's scary for people to venture out there. But once again, I mean, you, you are the professional, right? People are coming to you because you are the source of knowledge when it comes to this. You know, you should be the specialist in the fitness industry. And that's why they're coming to you and nobody else. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe it's your person. I don't know. But either way, they're, as you mentioned, they're going to do what you want them to do. And, you know, you better, I, like I say, you better have kind of a, I don't say justification, but you better have an explanation too. You know, like, why am I doing this exercise? Well, because it's, you know, I don't know, it's Monday, it's bench press day. So I think a lot of people just have to have a little faith and, you know, take that step to make the changes. And, you know, if, if anybody is doing other kind of modalities of training, okay, great. And if they're interested in including more, you know, my, my words of wisdom, if you want to call it that was, well, the worst thing you could do is like shut down on Saturday, move everything out Sunday, all sandbags, and everybody comes in Monday and it's like, here, this is everything we're doing today now. You know, I mean, you slowly start incrementing, implementing this stuff into the programs. And before you know it, you might have somebody that's like, I actually like doing a front loaded squat better than I like doing a back, you know, a barbell back squat because it feels better on my body. You know, well, I can get down lower. And this story may boil people's heads, but like, when I started my gym, I was very barbell focused. 
And I think you can relate to this, Corey. I just come out of strength conditioning programs and stuff like that. So how did you get strong? You had to do barbell lifts, right? Yeah, all the time. So the story, like a million times, you've heard me tell, like the first piece of equipment I got was a souped up squat rack, right? I was, so that what my clients do, we deadlifted heavy, we squatted barbell heavy, we did all the, you know, what you do, right, at the time. And the first thing that came about, you know, first was kettlebells. And when I came across kettlebells, I started noticing it was easier to teach my clients things. They were able to have better success with things. So like you said, I didn't then Monday morning throw out all my barbells. I just started using more kettlebells, right? Over time, like we just started doing more and more stuff with the kettlebells. And then I got, I think a TRX at the time and we started integrating TRX stuff. And then, and then I made the sandbags and then like, we started doing that and like clients never said, oh, what about all that barbell work we used to do? I never had that comment. That wasn't something people said. So I think, I think it's actually a trainer thing, not a client thing. I think the trainer wants to be, they want to share what they're doing with their clients and they want to get accolades for it. They want to get attention for it. But the only people you have to impress are your clients. Not other they're the trainers. ones paying you. They're the ones paying you. They're the ones that are going to speak about the results they get from you. It'd be no different than if I went to my doctor because I'm sick and the doctor knew something was better, but it was different than what the average doctor would recommend. I want the thing that works the best. I don't care about what's popular. I don't care, right? I want the thing that's going to work the best. And I think, and I appreciate the opportunity you give us to talk about these topics because they're not sexy topics at first until you delve a bit deeper. Because if we give people the rationale then it's hard to go, I don't want to do that other than you have some emotional objection to the idea, right? You're that's usually what it's all change. about the emotions. I mean, that's, I think a lot of people, they just don't want to like, not a lot of common or common people, you know, the lay folk, yeah. um, not a lot of the general population, but it is the training people. They just, it's hard for them to buy in because they just have so much emotional worth and emotional like investment into these different, and as you mentioned, like, whoever's following them on, on the social, like it's, it's amazing how people like kowtow to these people on social media. Like I can't put this out there because they're going to think I'm doing something radically different and I'm going to lose followers or I, it's just, it's yeah. amazing where people are. And it's like, there's people that actually pay you to know what you're doing and to give them not just any exercises, but they, they want, they rely on you. They lean on you to give you the best exercises for them. And it's just, you know, we're talking about before the functional training. Now, what is, we can go through the rep, down the rabbit holes of all the functional training stuff. Um, but it works for, once you understand, I think part of the functional training that will make a big difference in people's lives is understanding the planes of motion. Once you start understanding that, that's going to make a difference in clients' lives. Um, you know, I think about uh, yes, Dr. Stu McGill and his big three. And you mentioned when you and Jess were approached by a a power or an Olympic weightlifter. Right. And she was having some back issues, like how this could help her sport. And we're doing, you mentioned before about doing a bird dog. So just hands and knees on the ground, she has to lift up the one hand and the opposite leg and how she was so unstable, right? There was a lot of rotation and that bird dog. I'm a big fan of bird dogs. I think my listeners know about this. Anybody that's in my gym, all the different bird dog things we do, but how effective it is. So, so simple but how effective it is to actually seal up those energy leaks so that you don't have that rotation. So you don't have that bad low back, you know, the side planks, these, these simple, simple exercises done with great intent is going to have so much carryover into performance, into just general living. And that's why our clients, I mean, when I say we're going to do a dead bug bird dog, 
side, well, side planks, I still get some cringes from people because it's, it's challenging. I mean, tell me, tell me why side planks are so challenging for people because once I teach them how to do it right, it's usually better, but right away, they're like, I don't like side planks. Well, I mean, something, I think it's something you're doing is very important and could get overlooked. If I just tell you to do a side plank because it's a core exercise, then it's just one of your million other core exercises. Right. You do it when you're bored, right? But if I say, hey, John's come in, he has some low back pain. He had, I found out through some simple screening that he's got frontal plane instability, meaning like he can't resist moving, he got excessive motion, maybe one reason or another, or he can't resist me pushing him in the frontal plane, whatever it may be. I'm gonna give him a side plane because I need to shirt up that lateral system because not only is that making his pelvis unstable, which is probably giving him some low back discomfort, any type of lifts we're going to do are going to eventually give him problems because he's always going to have this lateral instability. So then all of a sudden I made that side plank way more valuable to you. It's not mm -hmm. just another core exercise. If I, so I think, you know, giving meaning behind a lot of the exercise and not just, that's why like when you said, you know, explain what they're doing, like you don't need to give people dissertations, but if you just say it's a core exercise or it's just a strength exercise, well, that's not good enough. It's a stability exercise. Like what makes it useful for what we're trying to accomplish. And, and, and now as sort of as a coach over the years and a slight tangent, but I'll come back to make it. <laughs> I love the tangent. But, uh, but like, so I taught a, a program before COVID with uh, Alan Cosgrove, Brand Marcello and uh, Leslie Schilling and Brands was one of the first people coaches at XOs. He's a top level, you know, sports performance coach. And he was going through some progressions. And during a break, I said, actually, Brandon, I do it this way. And he said something very interesting. He goes, I never thought about that way because I don't deal with general pop. So your challenges with general pop are different than what I can do with athletes. Mm -hmm. So he goes, but that makes sense for what you, for the issues you're finding with general pop, those progressions make more sense. Yeah. Right. So I think context is really important too. We have, we want to get this, like the answer to all fitness problems, for, you know, and, and it can be tough because, you know, context is so important, but bringing it all back to the side plank where I was going with this is like, I would have often started teaching people the side plank as my frontal plane base level exercise. And now at this point, I'd almost start half kneeling. Mm, and, the, yeah. and the reason is, and, and it, did, it took me a long time to have my own head like wrap around this is so many people hate the side plank because you're having to lift a lot of your own body weight. So if I am deconditioned, if I am overweight, if I am elderly, if I am injured or any of those things, that's a lot to ask of me. But if I put you in a half kneeling position or I use a sprinter stance for like upper body, you know, movement, like I can introduce that frontal plane instability without putting the same level of demand on you. So you can actually start to build up. And I think the side plank actually comes a little bit further down the road now in my mind, because I'm asking you to hold up your own body weight. Even if I bend the knees and so forth, it's a lot of your body weight to support. And if you don't have that strength, well, how are you going to do that successfully? So I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And, you know, I'm glad we're having this conversation um, because it's just kind of confirmation in my own, in my own bias maybe, but um, yeah, I, I really, as much as I love the side planks and, but it's almost, it's when I introduce a side plank to somebody, it's usually after about three months of training with us um, because right away our onboarding with new clients. So if anybody's taken like the DVRT level one and two, I mean, I just follow that scheme when we come to onboard people. Um, you know, we start with a basic restoration exercise, kind of the hip bridge to teach them, to teach them the relationship with the ultimate sandbag first and foremost, and feet on the ground. I mean, it's just like, it's such a great thing for me to start people off with, but usually after maybe two to three weeks later, we're introducing the half kneeling arc press. 
And I just, Josh, yesterday I had a lady, she was here. Hopefully, well, I mean, she's listening. She doesn't mind because I'm keeping her anonymous, but she was doing that half nearly. Okay. <laughs> right. We'll talk later. Um, sorry, Susan. Uh, no, her name wasn't Susan. <laughs> I'm like, what was her name again? And I had her in that half kneeling art press. So again, anybody at home, you got one knee down, you got one foot, and you're taking that ultimate sand, sandbag and you're guiding it up over the crown of the head and pulling. So you're making that arc over your body. And she was just amazed with how challenging, you know, because everybody feels so unstable. And then I did that whole trick where you put the band around the front ankle and the back foot to just help her with that feedback of stability. And wow, when she actually engaged with the band, she's like, I feel it in so many different areas than I did before because I didn't notice her feet were getting loose. And anybody out there knows you just don't want to over talk and exercise with a client, you know, like, Hey, Hey, so-and-so I want you make sure you grab the bag tight. Now make sure those feet are in. If I'm pushing this heel and it's like a paralysis by analysis, they don't know what to do, but you slap on a band and you don't have to say much anymore. Just, Hey, push that band apart, do what I ask you to do. And she was like, I can't believe how hard my legs have to work. And right there, I mean, and she's like, that's a big exercise. So as you're talking about, like, I'm glad you brought that up because side planks are great. But for a lot of people, that emotional attachment too, they have an emotional trauma sometimes to a side plank if they've been in the fitness world before, because like, hey, everybody, we're going to do this exercise. It's really good for you as you're talking about, but they do it and they're like, man, my shoulder, you know, like my neck hurts because they don't know how to hold them. They're not strong enough, right? It's not that they don't know how to. They're just not strong enough yet for that drill. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a bunch of good points there. And I, I mean, I think for one, with a woman doing the happening in our press, I mean, I always joke like we have a host of exercises that just and I laugh at that are probably the worst for social media because if you just watch them, you don't get it, right? It looks like I don't get it. Like, why is this tough? Why are they saying this is good for me? I don't get it uh, until you do it. And then like everybody's eyes ball. I think like the press up was always a good example of that too. Like no one gets how challenging or how much core activation you get during your press out until like, it's not just pushing a weight out. Like you see a lot of people do, like when you put that intent behind it, then it's like, Oh my God, the eyes look like, like Holy cow. So I, I think, you know, it's the key where what you're talking about is being really intentional and being very selective in what you're queuing first. And, and again, like, I think that's what we do in our courses really well and uniquely is we almost have a hierarchy of what we're going to queue. And like, you know me, you know what we've said a million times, like if you're, if you're unsafe, I'm going to stop you and we're going to go over stuff. But if you're not perfect, that's fine. We'll build up to it. It's like, but like you said, you can give people information overload and like, they're already thinking about 20 million things and then you just add another 20 million. <laughs> so I think just, you know, giving them simple things to focus upon is, is super powerful. But yeah, I mean, I think if you have, it also speaks to a system, right? If you have clients who they do have some trauma. I've ran those clients too. They're like, oh, last time I did side points, my shoulder hurt, my neck hurt. And yeah, maybe they didn't push down correctly, whatever it may be. Maybe they didn't do that right with another coach or another fitness program, but they have that trauma in their head and they relate to that, the pain. So do I have to then as a coach blow up my idea of giving frontal plane stability? No, I just do it in a different way. Right. And so uh, that's that comes to the art of like meeting people where they're at. But if I don't have a system, I don't know where to go. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I'm guessing I'm just going to throw another exercise at them and hope I get frontal plane training. Like is a, is a suitcase carry frontal plane training? Yes. Is it way too advanced for most people? Yes. So again, if you're like, well, that's what goes into like understanding a little bit deeper. Like I see a lot of people go, oh, here's a frontal plane exercise. It's a suitcase carry. Like, yes, it's a frontal plane exercise, but it's like saying, oh, look, here's a hip hinge. Here's a split, here's a split jerk. There are a split clean, <laughs> right? Here's a split yeah. clean. Like a split clean is a hip hinge, but man, it's a really complicated one. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's like, I, I think what coaches don't understand is like, you just get to the tip of the iceberg once you start talking like, oh, here's a 
lateral stability exercise, or here's a re resisted rotational exercise. You have to go so many layers deeper to understand, okay, where should I be putting this in programs? How do I progress this? If my client can't do this, what do I do? And that's, I think, what we try to answer in the system it, it, are those questions, because those are questions I had, right? No one told me those things. So yeah. I know like as a coach, I want to know the answer. So I need to share that with other people. Then it becomes valuable. Otherwise it doesn't become very valuable to people and they get frustrated, right? If, if I do, if you make me do a suitcase carry, you're probably going to hurt me because I have all that structural instability in my lumbar spine. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. So, right. But if I can't do that, what are you going to do with me? Right. Uh, I oh, oblique you know, crunches. <laughs> maybe, maybe this will be a good way to sort of bring everything together. Right. Recently, Jessica sent me a screenshot. Someone on a Facebook group had talked about they were teaching a course, an exercise kinese. And one of the like, last things they were having the class do is write like an exercise program for people. And they give case studies. And the professor said he'd never, he always does this, but he never, he never tells the class that he's always one of the case studies. Oh. Right. And within the case study, it says this person has a C4, C5 bulge. Right. What, what's the exercise program? And he took a screenshot of it, one of his, of course he didn't provide the name, but like the student responded, this person's too disabled to exercise. First now do no harm. <laughs> now, I mean, listen, if you don't know what to do with someone, that's fine. I respect That's that. probably but, the best answer. Right. But my, the point is that like, we put all these things out, like there are a million things that person could do. But if you're only focused yeah. on certain exercises and super certain modalities and certain whatever that may be, then you're going to miss what the solutions could be for that individual. So that's why it takes and requires a deeper understanding from the professional, not necessarily the, the client, but we should be able to express that in a very simple and relatable way to the client. Yeah, no, And that's, you know, way to tie that all in because that just is a perfect way. And I just think like, especially this, uh, this conversation today, I feel like there's so much benefit for a fitness professional, but even for the fitness enthusiast to kind of get a better idea. So if there's somebody out there that is not in the lacrosse area and can't hire us right away, you know, to start asking trainers, like you don't have to ask them to be mean, but like, how do you, how do you develop strength in the planes of motion? You know, this is a good place where, because I think, I think people need to be an advocate for their own health and just to walk in aimlessly, you know, I think about how many people go to the YMCA is like, yeah, I want a personal trainer. It's like, well, Bob's up here next on the list. So right. you get Bob, you know, and it's like, Bob might not know much and Bob might know everything. You might get a, you just might get the gold mine right here, but it's good for, it is good for clients to do some research on things. Um, you know, especially like how many people in the medical, like how many people <laughs> right or wrong, you know, they go to WebMD to find out what's wrong with them. Right. So when they're trying to find out what they actually want from a fitness professional, they should try to find out exactly Well, maybe not exactly, but they should have a better understanding of what they should need. Like, and I think this episode here, this conversation, give them a little starting point with planes of motion, because if you start, if you start moving efficiently in the different planes of motion with different loads and that way you're just going to progress and you're going to continue progressing, never getting bored and always being strong. So that's, that's my take home message. Yeah. I mean, if I could just follow up with that, I mean, I think that's a powerful message um, for people. It's like, you have to be your own health advocate. Just even when I would see a neurosurgeon or I'd see a pain specialist or I'd see whomever, I always looked up who they were mm -hmm. and like try to find out as much about them as possible. But even when I took up something like Tai Chi, I wanted to find out what makes for a good Tai Chi instructor because I don't know, right? Like, so I think, you know, obviously sometimes you don't know until you, you don't know if your personality's matched to you start working with them. But I think what you're saying is important instead of just going to the gym and going hiring a personal trainer, like, you know, asking some questions, finding out some base information that's good to ask the trainer is really important because I mean, 
there's a lot of bad trainers out there. And I don't mean to do this to like to cut down our industry, but it also hopefully will drive those trainers to want to have interest in learning more of that it's not just about working out, sweating, being sore. I mean, you know, there's so much more to our profession. And if we acknowledge that we elevate that level, then people, the general public would see us at a higher level too. Uh, you know, no, absolutely. So I think, I think that's, that's super important and, and, and simple concepts, right? Like, it breaks my heart that fitness pros don't know what planes of motion are. They don't know why it's valuable because we're all, I think, largely in this industry to help people, but you get limited in how much you can help people, you know, if you miss these things. And, and as coaches, if any coaches are listening to this, we get so caught up in the really complicated things sometimes that we miss the very obvious things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if like, if, if this was a standard, I'd, I'd be able to talk about other things, but this is like, I mean, I can't tell you how many, fitness pros on our tests or and our tests are not meant to be like tricky or crazy miss naming the planes of motion even after they attend a course so i mean i think there's i think is there's just a detachment and i you know something you and i talked about like leading up to this if this is just the first exposure to this great yes. but hopefully you expose yourself more and more and delve in deeper and learn that there's not something that Corey and i are making up this is well-founded in literature like you want to talk about ECL injury prevention, you want to talk about low back health, you want to talk about performance, you want to talk about, I, I remember talking to a, a well-known person who favors the glutes. Uh, one time when I had my gym, cause he lived close to me, he came over and we were talking about rotation. He's like, oh my God, in rotation, there's so many muscles that are active. I can't believe people don't do it more, <laughs> right? But you don't know which muscle is that? Is it just my obliques? No, there's like 30 muscles involved. So I guess the moral of the story is that we just keep, like, we're not doing this because we make money off telling you to train points in motion. It's just a way, it's a better way to train. And it just, like you, I think you said earlier, opens up what you can do with people so much more. Absolutely. So I, ooh, I, <laughs> it's one of those, like, I feel like we can just keep going up the ladder of like going off each other's uh, thoughts and all that. But I, I, I'm very happy with this conversation. I think, like I said, we gave people a lot of food for thought. And hopefully people, the fitness professionals out there, the coaches have some basis of like, you know, I need to learn more about that, you know, because that's, that's it. Just be open to learning, be, be malleable, be, be impressionable and let that help out your clients. So and if I can say one more thing, before you go fast, <laughs> it's like just, just on that, cause you made me think of it. If you go down that rabbit hole and you find people that are making this really complicated, they're probably not the right people. There you go. Yeah, that's this great. This may be new to you, but shouldn't be overwhelmingly complicated. It's a very accessible thing to do. And, very, and once you see it, it's very easy to apply. Like you do such a great job with that gym. So if you're getting to someone, they're talking over your head and making this super hard, probably not the right people to follow. I'm going to tell people right now, all you have to do is type in on your computer, ultimatesandbagtraining.com, <laughs> go to their blog site and search for Planes of Motion. And you'll find out everything you need. And you might see some videos of me, but just a few. Um, no, Josh, I, again, I so appreciate you coming on for the second time. I can't wait to get you on for a third time and taking a time out of your busy schedule to hang out with me. I really appreciate that. My pleasure, man. I always enjoy it. All right. So you guys, until the next time that we talk, Godspeed.